Let's pray together. Father, it's with joy that we've gathered here today. And what a privilege to be counted in the family of God, in your family, to be joint heirs with Jesus, to be seated in the heavenlies, positioned with that spiritual place, and then called to live out our faith here in our daily walk, to be lights in this dark world. Father, would you encourage us now as we open the word? Um, it's our weekly routine. It can be taken lightly. But Father, would you just help us realize what a great privilege it is to gather as a church and to worship together by sitting still and listening to your word. Encourage us and strengthen us through it. Challenge us. May you help us to be surrendered to the point where we allow your Holy Spirit to accomplish your purposes in us through the power of the word as it does its work. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. 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 You may be seated. It would have been the summer of 1978 when I was preparing to head off to Bible college, down to the Appalachian Bible College. I've been thinking about it with Chuck being here and things that are happening with Brandon, the intern here as well from there. And I was thinking about how my mother began to work to prepare me um, to go off to college and have the right clothes and things. It was a big deal, you know. And back then, my mom used to do a lot of sewing. She sewed a lot for us. We, my dad was the pastor of a small Bible church. Our incomes were limited. In fact, I remember that um, the sports jacket that I wore to church, she had made. It was plaid. And I wore it with a big green bow tie. And I thought it was cool. I still think it's cool. I wish I had it. I wish I'd have kept it. I'd wear it some Sunday. Um, but one of the things my mom made for me in preparing to go to college was, was a, a, a robe, a, a bathrobe, a house coat, so that in the dorm I could walk back and forth from my room to the shower room and she asked me what kind of material I wanted it to be made out of and we picked out deer hunter fluorescent orange material and I really liked it and I, I wore it with pride and I would walk up and down the hall and the guys would make fun of me and they would hoot and holler and carry on Marceau where'd you get that and you know I didn't care what they said I thought it was cool I was a deer hunter I thought I was the only guy with a fluorescent blaze orange hunter safety shower robe I mean, do you know how it is to have something quirky in your life that you just don't care what anybody says about it? I don't care what you say. It's my yard. You don't like it. Get out of here. And you don't care. I don't care whether you like what I'm doing. or You know that feeling? You know what I wonder? I wonder how come it's so hard to get that feeling about Jesus? What is it about naming the name of Christ? What is it about identifying with Christ that often kind of just causes us to close in. And we just kind of, well, and we're just kind of quiet. I'm not saying that Christians should be obnoxious in any way. But I will say that in these weeks, as we are working our way through Matthew, and you can turn to Matthew chapter 9, that one of my express goals, as we encounter these great Miracles and these occurrences and these teachings of our Lord Jesus, 
the master of the universe, that it would embolden us. One of my goals for our whole church in these months right now is is that we would just really ratchet up the level of confidence that we have of identifying with Christ. I mean, why would we ever be embarrassed to name the name of Christ? And as we study these passages and we see these wonderful Miracles and just the incredible contact that he had with these precious broken people. And we see what he does. Why would anybody ever be embarrassed of Jesus? And so I want us to be encouraged and I want us to be strengthened. And we're going to encounter five different groups of people in this passage today who come to Jesus. And they come for different reasons. We're going to see in Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 14 through 17, that a question is asked of Jesus, and we're going to deal with that. And then I want you to see that following the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees who asked that question, so that's the first party, they come to Jesus, number one, for clarification. After that, we're going to see that that Matthew records in short order and clicks off four wonderful miracles. And I want you to notice I want you to notice that in every case, including John's disciples, that all of these people come to Jesus. I want you to watch how they come to Jesus and with what attitude they approach Jesus. I want you to be strengthened by the very way that these individuals come to Jesus, as well as I want us to respond to the great work that he does in their lives. Let's read the first part of the text today. It's Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 14. We're picking up where we left off. I didn't double-check my notes. It's been a number of weeks since we've been in Matthew 9. And if you've been here, you know we're working through Matthew's gospel. And we dealt with uh, Matthew's personal testimony where Jesus called him from his tax collector's booth. And he left it all and followed Jesus. And then you'll recall, and we found out from Mark and Luke... Uh, their accounts of the passage, that it was Matthew himself that threw a big dinner in his house and he invited all the other tax collectors and sinners. And so this question that John's disciples are going to ask that we're going to read about in just a minute is in the context of Matthew's testimony beginning with verse 9 where he called Matthew sitting in his tax booth. He then goes to Matthew's house. They have a big feast. And so Jesus and his disciples are eating. All right? And so picture Jesus always being watched like a hawk by the Pharisees. And interestingly enough, combining with the Pharisees were the disciples of John the Baptist. And they're going to ask the same question. Let's read about it. It's Matthew 9, beginning with verse 14 is where we pick up. Then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, came to him, that's Jesus, saying... Why do we, the disciples of John, and the Pharisees, strange bedfellers though they might be, the Pharisees, why do we fast? Okay, why do we avoid eating at certain times of the week? And and your disciples do not fast. Okay, so picture the context. It's likely that this question and that Jesus was approached almost immediately coming out of Matthew's house where he had been eating... We also know from other accounts that on a fairly regular basis, Jesus and his disciples, 
we never read that they were fasting. They, they're eating. They're in someone's house eating. They did that quite a bit. So the disciples of John and the Pharisees come together with this. You need to understand because the rabbinical teaching of the day had forced upon them a ritual of fasting every Monday and every Thursday. Now, when you read the Bible back then, the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 16, the only instruction that they had for fasting from Moses and the law under the system of of the Old Testament was for the Day of Atonement, and it was only once a year. So why is it that at this time of Jesus, there's fasting? Okay, fasting is the not eating of food. They might drink a little bit of water, but particularly, and just like Dr. Bethel referenced Ramadan, they wouldn't eat from sunup to sundown. Why is it that by the time Jesus is ministering, that they're fasting every Monday and every Thursday, two days a week, when the scriptures only called for them to fast once a year during the Day of Atonement? Well, it was because of their, the regulations of the rabbis. And you know how it is. You know, you just one layer upon another layer of religiosity. And they just thought, well, if it's good to fast once a year, it's good to fast twice a year. And if it's good to fast twice a year, it's good to fast twice a week. And it makes us that much more spiritual. And you can remember from uh, the Sermon on the Mount not that long ago how Jesus attack them for their hypocrisy because when they fasted, you'll recall, they went to great lengths to make sure everybody around the area knew that they were fasting. They put on old disheveled clothing. They messed up their hair. They would sometimes smear ashes around their face. And then they would put on the most pained look because you see fasting, true fasting really is always driven by brokenness, by concern, by emptiness, by incompleteness. True fasting would, would be, Lord, I, I have no answer for this. Lord, or I'm so grieved over my sin that I won't even eat. Or I'm so grieved over this burden and it's so burdensome, I won't even eat. I'm just going to pray all day. And as my hunger pains take over, it's, it's going to drive me to remember that I have this huge burden And so John's disciples, though John had directed them to Jesus, were still following up on the rabbinical practices of this Monday-Thursday fast every week. They would put on the old clothes, put on the old look, put an old look on their face and walk around, you know. And then Jesus and his disciples are sitting around eating. So while they're fasting, Jesus and his disciples are feasting. And that kind of bugs them, you know? It's like, ah, it really bothers me. What's up with you guys? The Pharisees, the same way. Now, the Pharisees would always approach this from a critical standpoint. They were always trying to nail Jesus to the wall, knock the legs out from underneath him. There's nothing in the text that would lead us to believe that John's disciples were anything but sincere in their question. And it's possible that some of the Pharisees wondered the same thing. Now notice in the passage, as they come to Jesus, this group of people first, number one, for an explanation, in search of explanation. Notice in the text, it says, why do we and the Pharisees fast, uh, verse 14, but your disciples do not fast. Now verse 15, Jesus immediately answers a question as he always does with a question, often. You ever have teachers like that? It's like, you ask a question and so they ask you a question back. Oh, that's really helpful. You know, did you notice that Shoopy does this all the time? <laughs> Irritates you, doesn't it? 
I finally figured out why he does it. He does it because he doesn't know the answer. <laughs> but uh, he does. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Okay, so they ask a question. Jesus, why are you fasting? I mean, Jesus, why are you and your disciples feasting when we are fasting? And Jesus says to them, can the wedding guests guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, where did that come from? We won't take time to look at it, but it comes as a direct direct quote. Remember, John the Baptist's disciples are the ones who are asking this question. And if you would look in John's gospel in chapter 3, you would find that that's that passage where John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. Remember that? I'm not even worth, I'm not even worthy of lacing the laces on his sandals, where John the Baptist came as a forerunner. Remember, he came announcing that Messiah would come. He came promoting Jesus. And then he said, he must increase, I must decrease. He turned his disciples towards Jesus. Not all of them got the message. And they were still following some of the practices while they were following John the Baptist. And in John chapter 3, in that passage where he says, he must increase and I must decrease, John said, I am a friend of the bridegroom. And while the bridegroom is here, it's my great privilege to talk about him. That's my paraphrase. But he, he used the phrase that Jesus is the bridegroom and we're just the friends of the bridegroom. And it's all about the bridegroom is the point. It's not about us, his friends. So Jesus looks at the disciples of John and the Pharisees and he says to them, can a wedding guest, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He then goes on to say the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So Jesus is just saying, look, the bridegroom's here. We're preparing for this great wedding feast. While the bridegroom's here, and in the Jewish tradition, they, they would not fast during, a, during all the preparation for a wedding feast or a wedding ceremony. They would be full of rejoicing. And Jesus' whole point is, I'm the bridegroom, I'm here. Why would my men fast when the bridegroom's here? Why would we do that? It doesn't make any sense. And then he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away in the, in the original Greek, that word taken away is the idea of being harshly snatched, grabbed. It's likely, most likely, a reference to the crucifixion and then possibly even his ascension and taken away from them and then he will be gone. And it wasn't just last Sunday, no, two Sundays ago when Tom Jesserin right down front here preached that good message on the ascension and the, the realities of that, this whole thought. Thank you, Tom, for that. But Jesus would be gone then. And when the bridegroom is gone, then there will be time for fasting. That's his whole point. All right? Why would we do it now while Jesus is here? So Jesus explains this to them. And then he gives this curious parable. Luke, in his account, calls the next two verses a parable. Matthew, Matthew doesn't call it a parable, but Luke says it's a parable. In Luke, and no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So Jesus, speaking in a parable... Okay, so you have to ponder it. A parable is like, okay, I'm supposed to understand that there's a spiritual truth here. 
based upon an everyday occurrence that I understand that Jesus is using it as a word picture to illustrate a spiritual truth that I should get. So we ponder it. So the idea was in this day that the audience would have understood that many of their outer garments especially were made, um, depending on the time of the year, either out of wool or out of linen, neither of which did very well when they got wet. But they wore the same garment and no doubt got caught in the rain or whatever. And and so an old garment would eventually wear and it would shrink to fit and it kind of fits you. You know how it is to have an old jacket that you like and maybe the elbows are wearing out on it. and But it just fits nice and it's all worn. So you wouldn't take a garment that you've been wearing that's all shrunken into place and, and been worn and then put a brand new piece of wool to patch it because then when you get caught in the rainstorm the brand new patch shrinks it tears the threads and then you've got a worse mess on your hands than you did the the hole you were trying to patch to begin with and then he goes on to give this further word picture neither verse 17 is new wine put into old wine skins so you wouldn't take an old wine skin that was probably the skin of a dog and it had been tanned and then shrunken and it it had been used so that it was no longer any greenness to it. It wasn't shrinking anymore. And and you wouldn't take new wine and put it in an old wineskin because it's lost its elasticity. It no longer has elasticity. And if you put new juice in it and new wine that was still in the fermenting process, it's going to puff the thing up and blow out the seams on it. And then you have a mess on your hands. So what does it mean? He doesn't explain it in the text. But here's what the idea is. Think about what he's answering. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to the disciples of John the Baptist. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, look, I didn't come to patch up an old system. My teaching isn't an add-on. My teaching isn't something that I'm coming along and I'm taking the old system of Judaism or the rabbinical teaching layer after layer of all the rules and the laws that you've been laying down and trying to keep. I didn't come to just add to that and patch on or patch up an old system. Nor, would he say, is Christ teaching, nor I don't fit inside the old system. The, the new wine would be their teaching of Christ. I don't put it into an old system. Jesus did not come, we know, to deny the law or to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law. And so I think, he, I think he's referencing not the Old Testament law at all, but he's referencing some of the teaching of the rabbis that had become part of of the system of religion around them and how the Pharisees abused the system and the people are trapped in this cumbersome religiosity based upon the Old Testament, but now highly distorted. And Jesus comes and says, I'm all new. I'm not about patching up an old system, nor do you fit me into the old system. The old system, that's law. The new system is grace. The old system is externals. The new system is what's going on in your heart. The old system is me being careful about the calendar and and wondering what to do next for the feast and the next thing and all of these days of fasting. And Jesus came and said, all days are equal. I mean, it is a whole new way of thinking, a whole new message, a whole new kingdom that he's talking about, a whole new message of grace. It wasn't the patching up of an old system, nor the fitting into something that already existed. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. Now, I want you to notice that as he's teaching, verse 18 says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. So he's, he's there. And I picture that there's a sequence of events where they've been observing him feasting. That's why they were, while they were fasting, he was feasting. They come and ask him the question. 
He gives this parable of the new patch on old garments and the new wine and old wineskins. And it says, while he was saying these things, he gets interrupted. And this is a great scene. Let's read the rest of our text for today. And then I actually want us to go to Luke because as is so often in the accounts of Matthew, Matthew is clicking off. Matthew's purpose is more about the main point and less about the details. He's lifting up the king of the universe. Remember, Matthew is holding up Jesus as the king and he's proving his point of his authority. So he's not too worried about the details. He's worried about building a case and arguing for the king. More in Mark and Luke, we find the chronological unfolding of the details of his ministry. Now let's just read what happens. While he was saying these things to them, verse 18, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. In case I forget to say it again, I want you to know what's astounding about this and remarkable about this man's faith is that there's, there's been no record before this of Jesus raising the dead. Now, we've seen him calm the sea. We've seen him cast out the demons out of the crazy man at Gadaria. So he has authority over the sea, has authority over Satan. We've seen him heal sick people, and he's showing them his authority, but Nobody said yet that he would raise the dead. And this guy comes running in. Says, My daughter is sick. She's dying. She's dead. It says, Matthew says, she's dead. My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, okay, so while they're moving and walking towards this guy's house, verse 20 says, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They knew she was dead. He called her sleeping. You're ridiculous, Jesus. You know any people who laugh at Jesus? But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose and the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. And they were going away, and as they were going away, so you get the feeling of a succession of events. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. We'll stop there. Would you mark that spot in your Bible and turn to Luke's Gospel in chapter 8? Because, as I referenced, Luke, uh, particularly in this account, 
gives us information that Matthew just skimmed over or generalized. And Luke gives us some specifics. And we're in Luke chapter 8. It begins with verse 40. Some of the information that Luke gives us is that the man's name was Jairus. Verse 41, and there came Luke 8, 41, there came a man named Jairus who's a ruler of the synagogue. So we know that he was likely a Pharisee or highly connected to them as a religious leader in the synagogue. And look at this, and falling at Jesus' feet, the Matthew account says he kneeled in front of Jesus. You get the idea that this guy comes running in with the greatest of urgency. So the disciples of John and the Pharisees, number one, came to Jesus for explanation. Number two here this morning, the next person we see is Jairus, and he comes to Jesus in deepest desperation. In deepest desperation. His girl is dying. Matthew says it's a girl. Luke says she's 12 years old. Verse 42, and he had only, a, and he had an only daughter, more information, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So she hadn't died yet. This father is desperate. This father has heard about Jesus. This father comes to Jesus, not like Nicodemus the Pharisee who came to Jesus in John chapter 3. Remember when Nicodemus had a question? How, must, how can a man be born again? Can he enter into his mother's womb again? How did he do that? Nicodemus was a ruler in the, in the synagogue and he was a Pharisee. And he came to Jesus by night, it says. Because he was a little bit embarrassed of his fluorescent orange bathrobe. <laughs> he wasn't sure that he wanted to be around Jesus in the daylight. But he really wanted to know what Jesus thought. This man, in deepest desperation, couldn't care less what anybody thinks. And he doesn't care about his position at the synagogue. And he doesn't care what they do to him. And he doesn't care what anybody says. He doesn't care what anybody does. His 12-year-old daughter's dying. And I think Jesus can do something about it. So I don't care what you think. I'm on my knees in front of Jesus. Interestingly enough, the third party that comes into the play of this sequence interrupts immediately. It says, verse 42, we're in Luke 8, and I'm reading the ESV. For he had only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying, and Jesus went, and the people pressed around him. So Jesus says, let's go, we'll go see her. At this point, Jairus knows that Jesus can heal the sick. He doesn't know that she's dead already. So then they get up. The people are pressing in, okay? And there was a woman, verse 43, who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. I don't know that it's significant that there's a 12-year-old girl and a 12-year discharge of blood. I don't, it just happens. I don't know what to get out of that, if anything. And it is interesting. And though she had spent, look at this, all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And Mark's account says that she actually got worse from seeing all these physicians. Let's talk about this precious lady. She comes to Jesus in hopeless frustration. She comes to Jesus in hopeless frustration. Can you imagine what it was like to not be able to deal with this issue? It's just continual flow. It's a huge hygienic problem. 
It's a physical problem. No doubt she doesn't feel well. The crowd is pressing in. Notice what happened. She came up behind him, verse 44, and touched the fringe of his garment. Some Bible scholars believe that there were tassels on the edge of the robe uh, and that she just reached out and grabbed the, the end of one of the tassels from the four corners of his outer robe. And immediately it says the discharge ceased. Bam. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Now, I don't think you can catch Jesus by surprise. Almost always, when Jesus says that kind of thing, it was because he had a reason. Well, always when he said it, he has a reason. He wanted to point out this woman's faith. Someone, Jesus said, and the disciples say, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me, for I perceive the power has gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. She felt her body immediately change. And he said to her, Daughter, he did that in Matthew 2. It's a term of affection, of kindness and gentleness in a world where women were not supposed to be around men like this. And daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Notice again, they approached Jesus. She approached Jesus. Notice the attitude. If I could just touch the corner of his garment, notice that it was in full faith, believing that Jesus is the cure of my problem. She's not laughing at Jesus. Think about her a minute. Number one, this was physically debilitating. She hurt. Her body didn't work right. Secondly, it was publicly humiliating. And she even speaks up in front of everybody and says, this is why I did it. And she publicly declares, why? I've got this problem. It was publicly humiliating and no doubt for 12 years she had to find certain times to go out. No doubt there were odor issues and hygienic issues and cleanliness issues and and it was spiritually limiting. She was ceremonially unclean with this flow. She couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't go worship with everyone else. She was ceremonially unclean. And Mark 5 says she spent all of her money. Luke says it as well. And Mark says she got worse trying to find a cure from all the local witch doctors, basically. And anybody who thought they had a cure had her drinking this and and bathing in this and, you know, counting these seeds and doing this and putting this oil on and that oil on and doing this and that. And that wasn't personal. You oil people (laughs) just couldn't help it. If you do this... You rub this on the bottom of your feet. And by the way, it costs $79. And it says she spent everything she had. It spent, she spent everything she had and she only got worse. In hopeless frustration, she reaches out to Jesus. We then pick up the rest of the story. Jesus deals with her. Her faith made her well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, so you see the the rapid fire succession of the events, right? And verse 49 then, while he was still speaking. So while he was talking to the disciples of John, Jairus comes down and falls in front of him, begging for the life of his daughter and the wellness of his daughter. While he gets up to move to go to see Jairus, the crowd presses on, the woman reaches 
reaches out and touches her robe while he's walking. He stops and turns to her. And then while he's finishing talking to her, he turns and here comes the servants from Jairus's home. And it says, while he was speaking, verse 49, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Can you imagine that moment for Jairus? It's his only daughter, only child. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. I'll tell you something. You better be careful about laughing at Jesus. He knows things that you don't know. And he does things in ways you don't know and that you don't do. And sometimes he's going to do things in the future that you don't know. And it could be that you're the kind of person here who loves to laugh at Jesus and laugh at his people. I want to tell you something. It's only because you've never been like Jairus or this lady yet. You've never been desperate. You've never been hopeless. Because you don't understand yourself. And the crowd, they're the flute players and the, and the mourners, public mourners. They just start to laugh. <laughs> what a weird guy. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed. I guess so. And he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Keep that phrase in mind. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 9. We have the disciples of John and the Pharisees seeking explanation from Jesus. We have Jairus coming in deepest desperation. We have this pitiful woman with the issue of blood coming in a hopeless frustration. And in Matthew 9, as we seek to wrap up a greater section of the passage, we see right away, and it says in verse 27, once again, and as he passed from there, verse 27, Matthew 9, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith. So notice again, it's people seeking Jesus. And these guys, number four, are Characterized by helpless limitation. Helpless limitation. Grown men who are blind? Come on, man. I can't, I can't do anything. It is remarkable what some blind folks can do. My brother-in-law, Howard Merrill, has an uncle, had an uncle, who's with the Lord now, who was a World War II POW prisoner in Germany. And because of malnutrition, he went blind. And his sight never came back to him from concentration camp, POW camp, by the Nazis. He lived in Tennessee, and he was a woodworker, and I've seen and held in my own hands beautiful carvings. He did chains, he did beautiful wooden scissors and things like that, or um, just different things. And, and one of the things that he would do is he would run a table saw. <laughs> he kind of looked like this, but he ran a table saw. <laughs> He had a clothesline from his back door out to his shed and he could just have everything set up and he could work. He could do remarkable things, but clearly, if you're blind, you have limitations, right? You have limitation. And these guys, notice that they don't whisper. Notice that they're not like, 
Let's sneak up on Jesus. They're not embarrassed about their blaze orange bathrobe. Jesus, son of David, come here now. And in their limitation, they just wanted Jesus to take care of it. And he does. We notice then that he immediately, as he's going away from there, and as they were going away, behold, a demon. Now notice here again, and back up in verse 30, and their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, see that no one knows about this. Yeah, right. My family, my neighbors, the guys who saw me begging here on the corner, how do I keep this pride? What's Jesus talking about? And why even at the end, when he raised Jairus' daughter in Luke 8, remember I said pay attention to those words because it's paralleled here. Same concept. You see this repeatedly. Jesus would do this marvelous work, look at the people, and then he would say, now don't go tell anybody about this. What's that all about? Well, Bible students come at this from different angles. I'm just going to, for the sake of time, come up with what I think is the best explanation. And it's actually, I'm just going to quote a sentence out of uh, Dr. John MacArthur's New Testament commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. And what about verse 30 and this phrase? And because it says here, he sternly warned them. The, the word translated in the ESV, sternly warned, is the word that could easily be translated. He scolded them or he exhorted them. Don't do this. He scolded them. Dr. MacArthur says the best explanation seems to be that he did not want, Jesus did not want his Messiahship proclaimed prematurely. So one of the things he's doing to authenticate his message, remember he's been on the Sermon on the Mount, he's been teaching with authority, he's now showing them that he can calm the sea, he can heal the sick, he can cast out Satan, he can raise the dead. You want to pay attention to me? I'll give you a reason to pay attention to me. But notice that he's on a timeline heading to Jerusalem over the course of three years, and he didn't want the crowds to mass around him and call for him to be the king like they did on Palm Sunday too soon. And I think he was just trying to keep a lid on it and the the local information. Just kind of keep this down low here a little bit. And yet the word spread, of course, and they went out. Look what it says. Didn't do it. And they went away and they spread his fame throughout the district. Listen, and Jesus changes your life. You don't be quiet about it, do you? Why would you be embarrassed of this Lord Jesus when he transforms your life like that? Then the demoniac guy, and number five, he was brought in by an outside motivation. There's no indication in the 32 through 34 that this guy came to Jesus on his own. It says, verse 32, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute. He couldn't talk. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. We'll talk about that phrase later on in the passage, in the Gospel of Matthew. Some Bible commentaries suggest that the two blind men, as they were leaving, encountered their buddy, who they knew was demon-possessed and mute, and brought him back. You have kind of an intervention thing going on here. And he had an external motivation. He had external forces bringing him to Jesus. Every once in a while, you got to grab your buddy and bring him to Jesus, don't you? Say, you need Jesus, buddy. He's not motivated to get there himself. But man, you got the devil inside of you. This guy, literally. 
So he was brought. What do you take away on something like this? I think that um, it's important to recognize as we think about these people coming to Jesus that number one, they all came driven by their deep need. And so we repeat it again. Only needy people come to Jesus. And a lot of us don't like to be needy people. We think that's a sign of weakness. You know, the great privilege of these dear ones was that they were there physically with Jesus during the three-year window when he could make blind eyes see, a, a mute tongue speak, a dead little girl come back to life and eat a sandwich. We don't have that privilege, but... We have significant brokenness, spiritually speaking, don't we? And we have significant blindness and limitation blind, spiritually blind. Filled up with all kinds of things in this world that we need Jesus to get out of our lives. And some of us are still dead spiritually. And we need Jesus to make us alive spiritually. You'll only come to him driven by that great need. Do you see your need today spiritually for Jesus? They came driven by their deep need. Secondly, I want you to notice again and say it again, and I'll keep repeating it because I really want us to grow on this. In their need, they didn't care who saw them with Jesus. And in his fixing them, they only broadcast it everywhere. And when you've been to the cross and you've laid down your need and your sinful brokenness and your sinful blindness and your sinful deadness at the cross, and you recognize that Jesus came and did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He healed you spiritually. He took your sin and cast it into the deepest part of the sea. He made you a new creation in Christ. You don't care who doesn't like it. And you don't care if they don't understand. Because I know that I was blind, but now I see. And I know that I was dead, but now I'm alive. And I know that I used to be filled up with all kinds of demoniac type stuff. And now it's gone. And the thirst for all the things of Satan are gone. And it all happened at the cross where Jesus made me whole. Praise God for his amazing grace. So there's only two kinds of people in the room today, I think. There's the kind of people who will laugh at Jesus and say, bah humbug. <laughs> and then there's those who will fall on their face before him and say, I don't care what you think. This is my Lord Jesus. And I need him to restore me and make me whole. Have you been there? Have you been to the cross? Or maybe there's other kinds of people in the room. I didn't think about it, but maybe you're just bored with Jesus. How could you be bored with this Jesus? So some of the followers of Christ here today need to get your orange bathrobe on, sew Jesus across the back of it, and say, I don't care what you think about my Jesus. I was blind, now I see. Why would I be embarrassed of my Jesus? It's also important, and we'll just stop right here, it's important to recognize that in all of these counts, not the disciples of John, but the four miracles that we talked about. Did you notice how they all came in faith believing that Jesus would do it? You only come to Jesus in faith believing. The Christian life can only be lived by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Believing that he is who he is, 
and he rose from the dead. The gospel is real. And like the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16, you can say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto my salvation for everyone who believes, who has faith. Let's bow in prayer. Do you have faith today, my friend? Do you believe in Jesus? Are you still laughing at Jesus? I say, go ahead and laugh. But let me warn you. One day, your little girl's going to be dying. One day, you're going to get your eye poked out. One day, you're going to get so sick of the, the filthy, satanic things that are filling you up on the inside. One day, you're going to get sick of your diseased body. And you're going to say, Lord, I've had enough. And you're going to stop laughing. Why not stop laughing today and come to Jesus be saved. Get your eyes open. Your life restored. Become a new creation in Christ. You do it by faith, believing that Jesus is the Christ, that he died for your sin. He rose from the dead the third day, according to the scripture, and he's your Lord and Savior. You can tell him that in your heart, in your mind right now. Father, in Jesus' name I pray before you, and I confess my sin, and I recognize my brokenness, and I recognize my blindness. And I ask for forgiveness of my sin. And I ask you that you just help me have my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for my salvation. That's your cry. Just come as you are right now. And so, Father, thank you for these great testimonies. Thank you for the reality of the change that Christ brings in our lives. Would you please accomplish your purpose in hearts and lives here today? And if there's anybody here laughing at Jesus... Would you please help them to recognize their need for Jesus? And if there's any of us who are embarrassed of Jesus, would you help us be emboldened because of the great things he's done, this wonderful master of the universe? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.